Today the message is entitled, Spirit-Empowered Living. And I invite you to turn to two passages of Scripture, Revelation chapter 3 and John chapter 14. As you're turning, I was, uh, in preparing the message, I ran across the file that I keep in my office. It's called the What Were You Thinking file. And uh, it's filled with all kinds of stories of dumb things that people do. And here's one, for instance, that I really enjoy. It's a a story of of a guy who walked into a Bank of America one day to rob it. Uh, But when he got to the bank, he realized he didn't have a stick-up note. He forgot that part. So he took one of those blank receipts that said Bank of America on it, and on the back he wrote the stick-up note. And then he's standing in line waiting for a teller, and he thought to himself, I wonder if someone saw me writing the stick-up note. So he got all panicky and nervous, and he decided to go across the street to Wells Fargo to rob that bank. And so finally, as he makes his way to the teller, he slides the note across to her, and she reads the note, and it says, this is a stick-up, S-T-I-K-U-P. Give me all of your money, M-U-N-Y. So she realized he wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer. So she said, sir, I would love to fulfill your request today. However, this stick-up note is written on a Bank of America deposit slip, and I can't honor it. So you're going to have to go across the street to Bank of America and rob them. And the man walks across the street, and he's standing in line ready to rob the bank when the police arrive and promptly arrest him. True story. Actually happened. You know, what were you thinking? Ever have a what were you thinking moment? I know I have. Every time I choose to go my path instead of God's, every time I think I'm smarter than God is, or if I'm too impatient to wait for God's answer, or God gives an answer to my prayer and I go, are you crazy, God? No way am I doing that. And every time when I have chosen to set my path separate from God, it hasn't turned out well for me. And when I've looked back, I thought, what was I thinking? Ever have one of those moments when you look back on life? You see, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. All the power of God resides in you, Scripture says, by His Spirit. The challenge we face is to live every day in a Spirit-empowered life. Now, many of you were here a couple months ago when Pastor Robert was preaching the series on words, life or death, and the message of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now that weekend across our campuses, we saw about 4,500 people come forward at the invitation and say, I want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I, I want the power of the Spirit in my life. The question that came to my mind as I was just so broken by the move of God among us was, what's next? How can we actually live every day in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit? Because I know Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 instructs us. Paul writes and says, do not get drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And the Greek word there for the verb filled is, a, is an important one. It's, it's written in a present passive imperative. And that's important because the imperative means to be filled with the Spirit is a command of God. It's an imperative. The present means it's something that's supposed to happen consistently or daily. And the passive means it's not something you can do for yourself. It's something you receive from the Lord day by day. But how do we live in the presence daily of a spirit-empowered life? Well, there are three marks of a spirit-empowered life I want to share with you today. And here's the first one. It's a transformation from independent to dependent. 
Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 3, because in Revelation chapter 3, we find the last of the seven letters that Jesus writes to the churches throughout Asia Minor. And this last one, Laodicea, is the only letter that Jesus writes that does not include a commendation, an affirmation of good deeds or good works. It only speaks of a confrontation and a condemnation of a church that had chosen to live independent of the power of God. Look what it says there in verse 14. Jesus writes or shares these words through the revelation of John. He says, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness of the ruler, witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> when he says there, I'm about to spit you out of your mouth, literally in the original language, it means to vomit violently out of your mouth. But Jesus uses this metaphor. He says, listen, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And is, is that, question is, is that some random comment, just a loose kind of analogy that he offers? Oh, absolutely not. You see, in Laodicea, is located about five miles south of a city called Heropolis. Now, Heropolis was a city known for its hot springs. Bubbling out of the ground came this hot water and people from all over Asia Minor would flock to Heropolis, not far from Laodicea, because of the medicinal value of the hot springs of Heropolis. About seven miles to the east of Laodicea was a city called Colossae, in which we get the book Colossians. And it was tucked away in the, in the mountains. And when the snow would melt, Colossae would enjoy the cold, cold, fresh, clear water of the mountain-melted snow. They were known for their cold water. And Laodicea had neither, and so they built this intricate canal system to try and draw water down from Heropolis, the hot springs, and the cold mountain water of Colossae. But by the time it reached Laodicea, the water was tepid and lukewarm, it was nasty to drink. Ever lived somewhere with nasty water? And Jesus takes this one truth, this one thing about the inability of the church, the people of Laodicea, the one thing they could not change, the quality of their water, and he makes a spiritual application. And he said, listen, because you are so independent and stubborn, because you think you can live this life apart from my spirit, let me tell you something, you're just like your water. You're lukewarm and tepid and I'm gonna spit you out of, your mouth, out of my mouth. Now, Laodicea was known for three things. It was known for its wealth. It was the center of banking in all of Asia Minor. It was a very, very wealthy city. In fact, when there was an earthquake in 80, 60 AD in Laodicea that was very destructive to the city, Rome said, we'll send funds to help rebuild your city. And Laodicea said, no, we've got enough money, we'll handle it ourselves. They were known as being very wealthy. They were also known for their medical center and their hospital, especially the eye salve that was used the healing of uh, eye ailments, and it was known all over that region. If you had a problem, go to the hospitals at Laodicea. Thirdly, it was known for its clothing, the manufacturing of black wool, and it was at the crossroads of, of travel and trade in that area, and so it was known as the place where you could buy rich clothing. And they were very proud of those things. And now look back at Revelation chapter three. What does Jesus have to say to the church? Starting with verse 17. You say, I am rich. 
I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Wait a second. Are you to tell me that there was actually a time, there was actually a group of people that put all their confidence in their wealth and what they could, what they could earn? What kind of dim-wit people would actually put confidence in their wealth? It's amazing to me. He says, you say I'm rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but notice Jesus, he says, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, notice this, poor, blind, and naked. And Jesus takes the three things that they found pride in, and he said, listen, in the spirit, you are poor, not rich. You are blind. You don't have the eye healing, and you are naked. You see, Jesus is trying to teach them that their pride and independence can only get them in trouble. And Jesus doesn't use some soft language here, does he? No milk toast message, no spineless, politically correct kind of roundabout way of putting it. He comes straight out and he says, if you want to live for me, you need to lose your independence. Because they had taken on the character of their culture And they had the form of godliness, but they denied the power therein. And there's a danger there. And it's true in our society today. The danger is a focus on self rather than the spirit. All of our language in our society tends to reflect the sense of, you need to gratify yourself. You need to take care of yourself. If you're empty, you need to fulfill yourself, society says. If you're stressed, learn how to take care of yourself. If you're on a job interview, you have to believe in yourself. If you're at the tattoo parlor, you must learn to what? Express yourself. If someone dares to criticize you, you have to learn to love yourself. And if you're not getting your own way, you have to stand up for yourself. And if you're on a first date, you ought to be someone else. (laughs) No, you need to be yourself. But the problem is, what if yourself is a train wreck? What do you do then? You see, the danger in living for ourselves, is we lose the presence and the power of God in our lives. Let me illustrate this by looking at Jesus' life and ministry. Turn to John chapter 14, if you would. Because Jesus offers to us a different approach. Jesus was dependent. And the first mark of a spirit-empowered life is becoming completely dependent upon God. This is in the Last Supper discourse, the final words of Jesus before before his arrest and trial. He's talking to his good friends and he says in verse 10 of John 14, he says, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? Notice this. He says, the words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it's the Father living in me who is doing his work. In other words, Jesus is saying, I don't say anything on my own authority. I say only what I hear the Father telling me to say. Wouldn't that be an incredible way for each of us to live our lives day by day, saying only what God gives us to say? Look at verse 16, he goes on, he says, he says, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another counselor. Well, who was the first counselor? Jesus. To be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. Catch this. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Jump to verse 20 now. On that day, Jesus says, what day? The day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit fell and all were baptized. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. 
The good news today is that Jesus has come not only to live, die, and be resurrected, but he left us the Holy Spirit as our counselor and our guide through life, and the Holy Spirit lives in you today if you'll depend upon him. Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 5 as he continues, verse 19. I love this. This is amazing to me. Look at this passage. Jesus, speaking about himself, says it this way. I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. He's talking about himself, the Son of God. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Now, I might not also be the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I'm wondering, if Jesus felt the need to totally depend on the Father and the Spirit in order to feel, fulfill God's mandate for his life, I wonder what that says to you and to me today on how we should live our life. So here's a question for you. What is the one thing you need to do to live a dependent life in the Spirit? Well, here's the answer. Surrender everything you have to God every day of your life. Aren't you glad you came to church today? The answer is surrender. Surrender your will, surrender your plans, surrender your dreams to the Lord, and submit yourself to the power of God. Philippians 4.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But the reverse is also true. I can do nothing, no thing, unless the strength of Christ is alive in me. Now, when it comes to surrender, aren't you grateful that you only have to surrender to God once in your life and that's it, you're set for life? That's not true, is it? <laughs> in fact, here's my definition of surrender for you. Surrender is our moment-by-moment -moment response to the greatness and the grace of God. Surrender is our moment-by-moment -moment response to the greatness and grace of God. Every moment of every day of your life, you have choices to make. Most of those are done subconsciously. But sometimes the bigger choices and decisions on what to say or what to do rise to the conscious level, and you have a choice to make. Are you going to follow the plan of God? Are you going to listen for the voice of spirit? Are you going to wait upon the Lord, or are you going to step out and be independent and do it yourself? Surrender is the starting point of the spirit-empowered life, day by day. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, deny yourself, take up your cross, and here's the mind bender, daily, and follow me. Okay? So the second mark, here's the second mark of a spirit-empowered life. It's a transformation from inadequate to adequate. Inadequate to adequate. Now, uh, those of you who know me know that I love children, uh, small children, uh, little ones especially, uh, toddlers and so forth. And just, if I'm out at the mall or we're at a restaurant or we're at a social gathering and I see a small child, I'll gravitate to that child and try and strike up a conversation or share one of my cartoon voices or something. And my, my children always say, Dad, Dad, you're creeping. Don't be a creeper, Dad. <laughs> you're gonna scare the child and their parents are getting mad. Stop, stop, don't look at the child. I, I, didn't ha I had to look up what it meant in the Urban Dictionary. I didn't know what creeping meant. But I always have loved children, and when I was pastoring in the Chicago area, I received a phone call one day from a family in our church, and they had, uh, their son was taken to the hospital, Cook's, Cook County Children's Hospital, with an asthma attack. And so I left my meeting, made my way to the emergency room, and as I, I went into the emergency room at the children's hospital, not a happy place to be. Uh, I walked by several rooms, and, and I noticed one room on my left that took my attention because there was so much activity, nurses and doctors and things beeping, and I looked over and I could see a very small child lying in the bed, maybe three, four years of age, and, and I couldn't tell if it was a boy or a girl because their head was completely wrapped 
in bandages about the size of a basketball. Well, the next room over was the room that I was going to, but the child that I was there to see was gone, and the nurse said they were downstairs with some x-rays and asked me to take a seat in the waiting room. As I did, I sat next to this couple, and I realized rather quickly that the couple I was sitting next to were the parents of that little girl, Emily, four-year-old, in the room that I had just passed. And I overheard in their conversation, kind of piecing together what happened. And just an hour or so earlier, Emily was playing in the front yard, and she was on her tricycle and was biking her way across the driveway just as her uncle was pulling out of the driveway, and he had run over top of her. And it was a life-or-death situation. I'm hearing this story and I'm broken at what this little child is going through and her parents. And so I just, in a bold kind of step, just said, I interrupted and said, I'm a pastor in the area and I just was wondering, I've heard a little bit of what your story is. Would it be okay if I just pray for Emily and pray with you? And they said, yes. I said, absolutely. And so I prayed with them. And then the prayer was over and then the doctors had come and asked them for consultation. So they stepped away. And then the nurse came and said, well, the family you're here for, they were down in the emergency or in the x-ray area and, and the doctor sent them home and they said, thank you for coming, but they wanted to get their son home and they would call you later with an updated report. And so I was free to leave the hospital, but something inside of me said, you can't go. But in that moment, Satan got in my ear. Don't you hate that when that happens? And he said, you said your little prayer. Why don't you just go? What, you think you're going to heal her? Just leave, pastor. You've done your pastor thing. And in that moment, I felt so inadequate. Because you know, Satan is a liar, but he usually wraps the lie in just a little bit of truth. And the truth of what he said was, there was nothing I could do in my own strength for that little girl. That was true. But in that moment, the Spirit of God spoke in a bold voice into my spirit, and he said, you may not be able to do anything, but I can. He said, they don't need you, but they need me, and I want to use you to comfort them. Well, I struck up a relationship with them, made my way back to Cook County Hospital uh, two or three times a week for two full months, and at the end of that period of time, Emily walked home miraculously healed by the power of God. Let me tell you something, you may be facing a challenge today that's way over your head, but I've got good news for you. You're inadequate. <laughs> the reality is that living the spirit-empowered life is coming to the conclusion that in my own strength, I am not able to deal with the challenges that God places before me. So I must rely on his spirit, absolutely. Charlie Shedd is a Christian writer, and he wrote this, and I just thought it was appropriate to the moment. He said, before we had children, I used to travel across the country sharing a teaching called the Ten Commandments for Raising Perfect Children, before we had children. He said, after he and his wife had their first child, he changed the title to Ten Hints for Parents. After they had their second child, he changed it again to a few tentative suggestions for fellow strugglers. <laughs> and by the time they had their third child, he said, I quit giving the talk altogether. <laughs> See, the spirit-filled life is about living in God's abilities, not simply relying on your own. I love what happens in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 because Paul there is confronted with a thorn in his flesh, a tormentor of Satan, not unlike mine that I mentioned a moment ago. 
It was, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited about the surpassing greatness of what I participated in. In other words, to keep me from thinking somehow I was doing this miraculous thing, Paul says there was this tormentor and three times I prayed to God, take it away. And finally Jesus speaks into his life in verse nine. Oh, I love these words. Jesus said to me, Paul writes, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in, weak, perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Let me tell you something today. Christ is sufficient and his grace is sufficient for your weaknesses. When you're weak, his strength emerges and he is strong. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5. Paul writes there and he says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. See, the issue is not about the abilities that you come with in the natural. The issue is what power lives within you. And this is found throughout biblical history, all the heroes of the Bible. For instance, Moses did not part the Red Sea because he had big muscles. I mean, David did not kill Goliath because he was an expert marksman. If that were the case, why did he pick up five stones? Daniel was not able to soothe the lions because he had good negotiation skills. <laughs> Esther did not stop the murder of her people because she was a beauty queen. Samson didn't kill thousands of Philistines with his own bare hands because he had long hair. I mean, if long hair was the criteria, then Fabio should have been an Avenger. <laughs> See, now I just divided the congregation in the under 40 and over 40 crowd, didn't I? <laughs> Fabio was a male model in the 80s. Well, just go Google it when you get home and you'll figure out who he was. But that just, it wasn't about the hair. Gideon didn't defeat the Midianites with 300 men because he was a courageous person. Joshua didn't see the walls of Jericho fall down because he had a loud voice. Jesus did not roll away the stone on Resurrection Sunday morning because he knew how to tell a good story. No, the reason the stone rolled away on Resurrection Sunday morning was because sometime earlier when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism in the Jordan River, the Spirit of God descended from heaven and remained upon him the rest of his life. And so when Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose again, it was that same power of God that morning that rolled back that stone and allowed Jesus to walk out victorious for the glory of God. It wasn't about any abilities that we have. Romans chapter 8 verse 11 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. You see, you are adequate today not in your own abilities, but because the Spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The third mark of a Spirit-empowered life today is a transformation from insecurity to security. See, one of the fundamental needs that your soul craves from birth is security. A newborn is take, taken and wrapped in a blanket and then 
cradles in the arms of its mother for security. A small child clings to a nasty, dirty, spit-up, stained security blanket. Or in our case, in our home, a security binky or a pacifier or passy or baba or chewy or sucky buyer or whatever the street language is nowadays for that little piece of rubber, I don't know. But my daughter, Megan, when she was little, she didn't have to have one binky to have security to go to sleep. And she didn't need two binkies, she needed three binkies. One in each hand and one in her mouth. <laughs> then she's ready for bed. And, and I, I have this on film because we would, I filmed her once because what she would do in her sleep is she would just, as this one got stale, she would rotate out the binkies <laughs> without ever waking up. Just every 20 minutes or so, new binky. You see, we all have security issues, right? They start at birth. So let me ask you, are you here today? Have any feelings of insecurity or anxiety about your life? Let me tell you something, if you have children or you've watched the news lately, your answer is probably yes, isn't it? We all feel insecure at times. We all have times of feeling anxious or fearful, and I know I do. Just because I'm standing up here doesn't mean that I never feel anxious or worry. I know I shouldn't. I know what scripture says. But I know when we deal with some of the challenges and the realities of life, the storms of life, things can get pretty insecure if we're not careful and not living in the fullness of the Spirit of God. Look what it says in Luke chapter eight, it's the story of Jesus in the boat with his disciples. And starting in verse 22, it says, one day Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat and set out. And as they sailed, notice what happened, he, Jesus, fell asleep. And a squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. And the disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And he got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. And then Jesus asks them this piercing question. Where is your faith? Where is your faith? That's the question I have for you today. Because your spirit-empowered security hinges on the answer you give to that question. If, if you had to answer that question right now, in this moment, where is your faith? What would your answer be? What would your answer be? Because you never know what storms are going to come up in life. You may be going through a storm right now. And the question God is asking us is where is our security? Where is our faith? Because you were created to find security in God, in his power, in his provision, in your life. And the same power, may I remind you, that was in Jesus Christ resides today in you. And just as a side note, uh, remind me again, what was Jesus doing in the midst of the storm? Sleeping. I mean, they were taking on water. He's getting soaked, and Jesus is sleeping. What a perfect picture of a person, a man, a spirit at rest before God. Psalm 91.1 says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So security today 
Security in the Lord is found in resting in the Lord. You want to know what else? You want to know where else security is found? It's found in resting and it's found in risking. Take a look at the book of Acts once. It's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. Not one time, not one verse, one chapter did God say, okay, play it safe. Take it easy. No, chapter by chapter, story by story. I mean, you have Peter who was fearful and hid from the authorities and denied Christ three times. But in the book of Acts, chapter four, he stands boldly before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, and in the face of death, boldly declares that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. You wanna talk about risking it all. You see, living the spirit-empowered life is being willing to risk it all. And the safest place you can be today is in the center of God's will. When was the last time you stepped out in courageous obedience? Living the spirit-empowered life is about totally surrendering our lives, laying everything down from God, for God, expecting God to speak, and then having the courage to respond when he does. I remember years ago when I was asking the Lord to find a place where I could be a senior pastor. Uh, I had been a staff pastor for about 12, 13 years, and my wife and I were praying for about a year and searching for the right church, and, and I had my kind of checklist, and I finally found the right church, at least I thought so. I found this church, and it matched all of my checks, all the boxes had a check in it, and so we had kind of set up the deal, and, and so they Elders asked us to fly to Des Moines to meet with them just to seal the deal and, and to kind of look for houses and so forth. And so my wife and I flew to Des Moines and we met with the elders all day long. And at the end of that day, as we were making our way back to the hotel, I remember as I was driving, I, I turned to my wife and I said, God has been speaking to me today. And he's saying, this is not the church for us. She looked at me and went, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> She said, I knew this wasn't the place as the day went on, but I was willing to come if this is where we were supposed to be. But, but I don't think this is God's answer. We invested a year in this process. We flew back to California where we were pastoring and just, just that sense of emptiness came over me. We had to start all over again. And the very next day, I was doing something very spiritual. I was mowing the lawn. <laughs> and in the middle of the front yard, the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And he said this, just this, it's time to move. It's time to move. We, I just turned down the only invitation. I, I have, I'm starting over. It's time to move. And it just shook me so much I had to turn the mower off. I was afraid I was going to cut some toes off. And I walked into the house, and Penny came out from the back, and she looked at me, and she said, well, what's wrong with you? And I said, what do you mean? She said, you look like you've seen a ghost. And I said, have a seat. <laughs> and she, I said, God just spoke to me. She said, while you're mowing the lawn? I said, yeah, while I was mowing the lawn. Well, so what did he say? I said, he said, it's time to move. He said, what does that mean? I said, I haven't had time to process it, but I'm pretty sure it means it's time to move. <laughs> just, just a guess. And she said, well, move where? And I said, well, I haven't figured that out, but I said, here's my plan. I think we need to call your parents back in Chicago, ask them if they'll take us in until we can figure this thing out. Now, let me tell you something. If you're in your early 30s, you have a wife and two small children, and the best plan you have is to move in with your in-laws, that's God. You, it's gotta be God. 
And so I would set up a meeting that following Thursday with the senior pastor to hand in my resignation. And in the interim, I called two mentors I had in my life who I asked each of them individually this question. Would God ever call you to leave where you are and move, but not tell you where to move to and why? And they said, uh, each one independent said, uh, ever hear of Abraham? I said, yeah, yeah, that's Old Testament. Do you have anything New Testament to give me? And this is, this is what they said. They said, now listen, that's a huge decision. I mean, I had, a, I had a six-week-old son. I mean, I was giving up my salary, my position, uh, security, our health insurance, all for a word from God. And they said, it's a big deal. And, and, but if, if you know it's God, you've got to obey. And I said, I know it was God. And they said, listen, the bigger the command, the bigger the challenge God puts before you, the more you need to know it's God before you step out. I said, I know it's God. That Thursday, I resigned my position. That morning, I went back into my office. I didn't even turn the light on. I sat down behind my desk, and for a moment, I thought to myself, what did I just do? And it was not more than 10 seconds later, the phone rang. It was a church in the Chicago area, five miles from where my in-laws lived, and they said, is this John? Yes, and they said, are you still looking for a church to pastor? And I said, well, yes, I am, as a matter of fact. And they said, well, every Wednesday night, we uh, come together, the three of us on the search team, and we've been praying. We don't talk to each other, but we've just been praying and asking the Spirit to lead us about who the next pastor of our church should be. And, they said, and I had sent a resume to that church months and months earlier, and I'd forgotten about it. And they said, we, we received your resume, but we put it at the bottom of our stack because we thought you were overqualified for our church. And they said, but independently, God spoke to all three of us and said, John Sperling is your next pastor. Is there any chance that we could meet up anytime soon? And I said, well, guess what? If you wait five days, which is the amount of time it took me to get the moving van back to Chicago from L.A., I said, if you wait five days, I can be there. And three weeks later, I was the senior pastor of that church. Because God does incredible things when we're willing to risk for him. Do you want to live the spirit-empowered life? Do you want to see God do miracles in your life, in your marriage, in your children's lives, in your finances, in your business? Of course you do. What does it take? It takes your willingness to rest in God and not depend on your own abilities and your own strength. To truly surrender every day, moment by moment, and let God be in charge. And it takes a willingness to risk when God speaks. Because if you want to live for God, let me tell you something. He's going to take you on an adventure you could never have mapped out in your wildest dreams. Living in the spirit of God, trusting in the voice of God, living in the fullness of God, where you're believing and obeying is the greatest, most exciting way to live your life. But there are risks involved. And God wants to know how willing you are to step all the way out in faith. That if God doesn't come through, you're going to utterly be destroyed. Because that's when, it, that's when it dawns on us what it means to really have faith in God. Jesus asks, where is your faith? Would you bow your heads, please? Close your eyes. Nobody looking around. That's the question I ask you as we, as we close the service today. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? Where is your faith. What are you willing to surrender? You can choose today 
to be in charge of your own life, to be in the driver's seat of your life, or you can choose today to let God drive your life. Let me just tell you something. Life always goes better when God is driving. Life always goes better when God's in charge. Some of you here today, God's placed a challenge on you and you know it's way over your capacity. You're in the perfect place for God because when he shows up, he gets all the glory. You want a better marriage? You desire something great in the life of your children or grandchildren? Are you waiting on God for a financial miracle or do you need a new season of victory in your life? Turn it over to the Lord. Live every day the spirit-empowered life. And when God infills you day by day, you can walk in confidence and victory in the glory of God because he's in charge and he's bigger than anything you're facing today. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we live in your victory. I pray that you would bless every person in the sound of my voice. Fill them to overflowing as we walk humbly in your presence, filled with your spirit to do great things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.